Welcome to Eat, Sleep, Wine, Repeat, a podcast for all you wine lovers who, if you're like me, just cannot get enough of the good stuff. I'm Yanina Doyle, your host, brand ambassador, wine educator, and sommelier. So stick with me as we dive deeper into this ever-evolving, wonderful world of wine. And wherever you are listening to this, cheers to you. Hello to all you passionate and eager to learn wine lovers. Now this episode is perfectly paired with Pinot Noir. So go grab yourself a glass. This is a great variety, so complex and nuanced with so much to discover. And we are joined today by Master of Wine, Anne Krabiel, whose brain is what I would love to rummage around in for a day or two. The way in which she dives deep into every little subject of the wine world is fascinating. And I think you're going to just linger on every word she says. She is a very talented wine writer who writes incredible long form articles. So for all of you wine geeks out there, you're going to want to Google some of them. And she's currently the chief editor of Full staff so you're going to learn all about this wine magazine in print and online her wine journey her female wine inspiration as it is women's history month but you do want to hear her thoughts here um i won't say any more and then we're going to focus on pinot noir pinot clones and as anne is from germany spat burgunder so take a sip of your pinot and let's go to the chat now I start this podcast the way I always start it. How did you get into wine? I did not grow up with wine because um, I grew up in the southwest of Germany, actually mm-hmm. in Baden, but not okay. in a wine growing village or not. there was no wine in my immediate vicinity. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad would only drink at the weekend um, mm-hmm. and would have beer. Ah, and my okay. mom usually wouldn't drink at all. And then, you know, when guests came, a bottle of liqueur or something came out. Okay. And um, for for sort of um, birthdays, my dad bought some local Baden wine, you know. But, <laughs> you know, so that was, a, I didn't grow up in a winery household. But mm-hmm. um, I grew up in a household or in a home and I had a childhood mm-hmm. that was very much about taste and flavor. Because mm-hmm. my mom cooked everything from scratch. Oh, lucky you. parents. Um, had a vegetable garden, but we were also totally outdoorsy kids. So oh, every, I mean, the seasons were alive to us. And mm. my dad always said, um, there's no such thing as the wrong weather, only the wrong clothes. And we really did go out hey, in hey. all weathers. Love that. And, you know, it was, it was kind of, we knew exactly the place where the mm-hmm. first wild strawberries would be or go and pick lily off the valley. And so oh, this beautiful. kind of thing where you are, totally aware of the mm-hmm. smells and the you know like and and I remember how um how attuned to to different smells I was even okay. this lovely thing of like do you know the word petrichor that smell mm. of rain on dry earth mm. or I remember we used to go and stay on a farm and in the morning because it was at high altitude the air would smell so different from our air at home. Uh-huh. And, you know, so I was always alive to these things. Beautiful. And mm. so flavor was always there. And then I was a very um, careful little teenager, very risk averse. <laughs> and <laughs> and okay. so I was purer than the driven snow. 
Uh-huh. I mean, I was when I think back, I it's, it's actually terrible how naive and innocent I was. Okay, adorable. Um, but then I spent um, a year as an exchange student in the US. Ah, and okay. That is actually when I started drinking wine, and I don't mean boozing. I actually mm-hmm. never. Um, it wasn't the sort of kind of student booze experience. No, it was just like okay, there is this thing called wine, and it's and I actually started really enjoying that. Okay. And, American and wine? Then, Were you drinking American uh, yes, wine? Yes, at that time it was American. Okay. And it was mostly Californian and stuff that For I sure. could afford because mm-hmm. I was a student. <laughs> and, of course. Um, then I came back uh, to Europe and I was at a loose end because mm-hmm. I just didn't know what to do and blah, blah, blah and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then via various, another sort of time in Italy and another sort of zigzag path I actually arrived in London with two suitcases and a rucksack. Cool, um, like that. Oh, totally. And um, then it started very, very slowly because um, I remember being on a camping trip Mm -hmm. and we had um, the Sotheby's Wine Bible with us. It was sitting on the dashboard all the time. So there was kind of predilection for this. But this is when, you know, like you... You have the camping gear in the back and you stop mm-hmm. at a vineyard and they allow you to taste and then you <laughs> yeah. buy a bottle or two because, again, you know, student days, camping trips, this was not kind of, um, this was not a well-funded time of my life, but it was fun. <laughs> and I actually had a key moment and this was in the village of Tan l'Ermitage when we went to the shop okay. of Chapoutier mm-hmm. where they gave me two glasses of white wine. Okay. And, um, I must have been Rusan or Marsan or something like that. I At the time, I didn't even know what was what. But they said, okay, so this is the same grape variety, it's the same, same vintage, but these are old wines and these are young wines. And I thought, you're having me on. That's not possible. They're so different. Wow, okay. And it was this experience that kicked off my curiosity. Mm. I, I never... In a way, alcohol is part of wine, but it was never the chief attraction for me. Mm-hmm. Getting pissed was never the yes. chief attraction. And I mm-hmm. wish, actually, today that I wasn't such a bloody lightweight. Um, <laughs> it does get in the way, doesn't it? Anyway, it yeah. It does. Uh-huh, and, I know. Um, so, um, you know, we knew that wine was this beautiful thing that belonged to a place, but I just knew so little about it. And this key moment kicked me off. And then I realized pretty soon after that wine is sort of the ultimate interdisciplinary subject and that it's Mm -hmm. infinite and it's like you could... For sure. You know, and and so back in London then I took wine courses, you know, the Christie's wine course or Mm -hmm. at the Bishopsgate Institute, the wine course. And it was all kind of fun, Mm -hmm. but a bit like weird. And then (laughs) I discovered... The WSET, and mm-hmm. that was the eye-opener, because the WSET was like, aha, here is yes. a structure. And this very non-weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but also structure. Just, yes. you know, like, okay, so this is how to organize this hugely unwieldy subject in my mm-hmm. brain. Yeah. And that, to me, because there's also a totally anal and anorak part of me, mm-hmm. and that appealed, and that combined with this... You know, I still remember the WSET tasting sherry for the first time and thinking, mm-hmm. oh my God, what is this? Did you like and it? Now, did you like it or not? 
Um, the very first time I just thought this is plain weird. But then, of course, <laughs> like, just like blue cheese, the first time you have Stilton uh-huh. or an mm-hmm. oyster, you think, oh, my God. Yes. But then you're hooked kind of pretty quickly. Yeah. And um, so I guess that actually is an interesting aspect of it all. It's this. And um, we're just publishing something about this, how it tells you a lot about a person, whether they're open to tasting new things. Okay. There has been this great curiosity always and the kind of, I, I used to describe it as a kind of pleasure junkiness. You know, you just think, okay, I am alive. I want to experience this. I want to know. I want to see. I want to feel. And this kind of really rather physical and um, visceral approach paired with a way of organizing the information in my brain Mm. It's kind of something what still that still drives me today, you know? Yeah, I love it. So that is the reason. And it, as you said, with wine, it, the journey and the experience and the knowledge, it never stops. Because when you think you maybe have got down the understanding of one region, some other unknown region starts coming up from nowhere. Our technology advances, our ability to analyze phenolics and understand the great variety itself i mean it's just the the subjects and the way we can go down this this path is never ending right it's and, uh, you know it's, beautiful. it's just this it was this kind of thing that is also quite overwhelming when you're trying to pass exams because i remember mm-hmm. looking at the syllabus of um paper one of the master of wine program yeah it's just that it just says the physiology of the vine and you just think excuse me please where do you want me to start you know and where do you and and even more importantly where do you want me to end Mm -hmm. and so it's actually once because if you if you did nothing else you could just study um photosynthesis for the rest of your life or nutrient uptake oh for sure you know throughout all of this you have an ever greater understanding and you sort of know what's what but the more you you understand, you know, and if I look at, at what the poor students have to do today, because I passed in 2014, and I think, oh, my God, I couldn't do this. And it's kind of, it's the only thing you learn is how little you know. I know this is a cliche, but it's actually true. It's true. Well, now tell me, obviously, we mentioned right from the beginning, you were born in Germany, and all mm-hmm. of this studying and your Master of Wine, you did in English. I mean, how was that to study in a um, second language? That that actually has never been a problem because I, um, for some reason... I mean, I started learning English when I was 11 years old in secondary mm-hmm. school. And for some reason, I never needed to learn vocab. It just, I just read it and I knew it. Um, by the same oh. token, I've never managed to solve a quadratic equation. So, <laughs> <laughs> so people shouldn't be too jealous. I love that. Just it, <laughs> not every talent. Oh, so, and, and I also have, I have no sense of bearing. I get lost all the time, blah, blah. So, but for some reason... English was a shoe mm. that fitted me. And then mm-hmm. I um, carried on. At 16, I did, this took me a year and a half or something, the Cambridge Certificate of the English Language. And then I did the Cambridge Certificate of Proficiency in the English Language, which is actually a a program or a, these are courses designed by, by Cambridge University for non-English speakers to, to gain a certain level in English, mm-hmm. in the English language. And I loved it. And I loved my teacher. She was the first intellectual woman I encountered in my life. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. She had a huge influence on me and I loved her and she taught us so well. And um, then I left for the States and it was, I mean, for me, English never was a hurdle. And then I came to London in order to study literature, English literature. And so the, the, the language was never a hurdle ever. Okay. That was never a problem. Okay. Well, I won't be asking you to give any advice to anybody else studying in their second language because, as we've already said, <laughs> you got well, that one I down. Can give, I can give <laughs> okay. that advice because, you know, once you become a master of wine, you also mm-hmm. become a mentor for other students. Okay. Yeah. Because you have been mentored and what you do is you give that on to other people. Mm-hmm. And so, okay. because I was so traumatized by my tasting exam, I just said, <laughs> oh, okay, no. I can... I can help people. Wait, why? Why were you so traumatized? Because what happened? it is a traumatizing experience. Uh, studying and preparing your palate in advance or the actual 12 wines in front of you on that it's, moment it's when... It's sitting the exam and it's like being, not having the confidence and just having a nervous breakdown and handing in empty pages and stuff like that when you have uh, no okay. money anyway, you're a freelance, you already know everything there is to know about tomato and lentil stew. And you've just spent five grand and empty, you know, and handed in empty pages. That is a traumatizing experience. Yeah. Yeah. It is horrendous. Yeah. Um, it is awful. And, you know, if you're a self-effacing person, nobody can beat yourself up as much as you yourself. Did you have to take your tasting exam several times then? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah. And yeah. I tell you, I, I passed. Tenacity. Yeah. I passed with the help of mm-hmm. a sports psychologist. Because interesting, um, you know, if you're doing fine in the mock, and if you yeah. if you can point to a petit chablis in your practice sessions, you know, and then you then you screw it up in the exam, then you you know at some it's point mental, you realize that right? that you're your own worst enemy, and mm-hmm, so he really mm-hmm. helped me. And um, okay, so it's but back to the language. So I volunteered to mentor people for their theory exams because theory okay. exams are about writing. Mm-hmm. And so there are, like to the tasting, there are various parts of it. Um, you need you need to know your stuff in order to write the essay and to in order mm-hmm. to answer the essay. But even if you know your stuff and you can't communicate, you won't be able to pass. And sure. so I have helped people who can write, but who don't know their stuff. These are the mm. easiest to help because you just tell them, sit on your ass and do some, you know, like do some research or ask some questions <laughs> or just, you know. Study then, more. <laughs> then there are people who know exactly, who know, who have studied and who know it, but who just can't say it. Mm. And these are the people I can help. I can coach them in how to write an essay in how to cut out superfluous things in how to say what they really mean um because mm, okay. this is harder than you think um you know well-honed language is is actually a craft and as i know i've i've made my living as a journalist for a number of years now i'm on the edit in the editor's chair boy do i realize that how writing is a skill and a craft and an art so mm-hmm. um and The people who have the difficulty in expressing themselves, English sometimes is their mother tongue. So it's not necessarily about, of course, you are at a disadvantage if it is not your mother tongue. But that is not necessarily the primary problem. You see? 
well, it's amazing that you actually probably have that. You've seen it from the other side by speaking two languages and your life is words. So that's the one thing you can really help other people with. Exactly. It's really interesting. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, you talked about yourself being a mentor. You also talked about this wonderful teacher, this female teacher who helped you. As March is Women's Month, I just wanted you to perhaps highlight if there was any women, female winemakers or previous master of wines that perhaps inspired you or acted as a mentor for you on your journey? Well, of course I can point to numerous, as every woman can, to mm-hmm. numerous little pricks who made my life difficult. Or, <laughs> you know, people who, you know, like men who are absolutely mediocre but think the world of themselves and think and they accord to themselves the space. So, of course, I can talk about this, but it's not a pleasant subject. Mm. But I must also say, for some reason, I've never seen myself, oh, I'm a girl and this is a male-dominated world. I no, actually that's great. Mm-hmm. haven't thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um. And I must say, I've experienced arrogance on the part of women as on the part of Mm. men. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that I'm not a feminist because I am your staunchest feminist. And boy, do I (laughs) see what is what. And Mm -hmm. now I also speak out and I see it. And so have women inspired me? Certainly. This, This wonderful English teacher did because she was an intellectual and you know she smelt of Chanel yeah. perfume and <laughs> she was married to a professor and she was just so worldly and I uh-huh. you know my my upbringing was not worldly my upbringing was you were picking beautiful vegetables from the exactly. garden exactly but but mm-hmm. you know it wasn't worldly or mundane there was no anything. Chanel no, there was no certainly Chanel. not no. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so she inspired me and I can also tell you what made a big impression is, I don't know whether you have ever seen this, and I certainly didn't live here when it was aired on television, but I got the DVDs later, and that was okay. Francis Robinson's wine course. Uh, I mean, you are not the only person to have mentioned that. I mean, I think Jancis Robinson, with the way she has spoken, what she's done, the fact that she kind of st- started so much earlier than, than many of us, she definitely is an inspiration. And, you know, the mm-hmm. opening the opening stretch of, of that wine course is Jans is walking in London, going to a tasting. Mm, and, I, okay. and I thought, how do you get that job? How do you get that job? Ah, and then you were like, right, I'm going to find a way to do that. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of um, so definitely an inspiration there. Absolutely. Wow. And okay. also what I think is... It's not necessarily male or female. It is kindness and acceptance Mm. and respect that people give you who know a lot more. And now I know that all of those people who really know their stuff aren't usually arrogant. It's insecure people who are arrogant. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Yeah. And, you know, now I think, okay, you know, I feel sorry for you and your little dick. So, you know... (laughs) fantastic oh okay good that was a fantastic summary on that subject now I want to get back to your writing because you have obviously written for years as a journalist as you mentioned and you've been contributing editor for 
pretty much every wine publication out there. However, since last year, you've taken on the role as editor-in-chief of Falstaff International. So this is the place for wine drinkers who love the finer things in life and food and travel. So, I mean, that's a huge responsibility because you're basically, you've taken something that was actually in German and now it's a whole publication in English as well, isn't it? So tell me about this. Well... Um, it is a huge challenge. And mm. um, last year, I started in January 2021 with this new gig. Mm-hmm. And um, when I look at 2021, I it was just a blur. And the learning curve was so <laughs> steep, and it still is. So Falstaff has been around for more than 40 years. And um, mm-hmm. at the turn of the millennium, it was bought by Wolfgang Rosam, who is an Austrian uh, PR guy. And yeah. now this sounds like somebody's vanity project, but it actually isn't. It's a business <laughs> with bells on. And um, okay. he turned it into the biggest lifestyle publication in Austria. And then in 2010, they entered the German market. And mm-hmm. the Germans were, of course, very sniffy about this Austrian publication sort of entering their market. But they have yeah. left the once best-selling gourmet magazine well behind. And then in 2014, they entered Ah. Switzerland and uh, German-speaking Switzerland. Of course, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I was contacted in 2020 by Mr. Rosam. And initially I thought, okay, it's the 21st century and he wants to start a print publication. And I thought, hang on for a minute. And we had a very frank conversation. (laughs) And then... um, we didn't speak for like two months and then he called me again and then we had a very, very open and long conversation. And in January, I started, mm. you know, so we are using some content that has been published in German and we are translating it, but we are actually mm-hmm. commissioning an awful lot ourselves. And mm-hmm. it is actually exciting to be able or to, to be at a project where you can help shape something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. the nice thing is that, yes, I'm a wine person, but if you look at the strap line, and it, it says Falstaff, wine, food, travel. And mm-hmm. sadly, I cannot claim ownership of that lovely phrase because Rosam <laughs> coined it. Uh-huh. He said it is the holy trinity of wine, food, and travel because somehow you can't take them apart. And... Before we started, we did a lot of competitor analysis. And of course, you see that there are wine magazines that have a foodie bit and a travel bit. There are travel Mm -hmm. magazines, but they hardly talk about wine, sometimes about food. Then there is food and travel, which is, of course, self-explanatory. But most food-based publications also leave wine in the shade. But, you know, so in the wine world, people generally care about flavor and they care about their food and they know how to cook. And if they don't know how to cook, then they certainly know how to order in a restaurant. And what is really funny is how many absolute experts of food are out there who then buy some kind of really nondescript bottle of wine. And Mm -hmm. so we think that with Falstaff, Yes, it is about wine, but there's also food and travel. We want to absolutely hold that trinity high and cater to all equally. That is what we want to do. And this is how we hope, these are the people we hope to capture. It goes back to this kind of curiosity and hunger Mm. for life and openness. That's what we want to do. 
wine, food, and travel literally mm-hmm. is my life. It's yes. the three things that I love more than anything. So I think you this is actually hitting the nail on the head, having a, a magazine and coverage dedicated, as you said, equally to the three most beautiful things on this earth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you much. Oh dear. Beautiful. Everybody listening, if you don't know about Full Staff, go across to online. There's the real publication. And I actually have to say, you know, he, you mentioned like, oh, what are you doing having a real magazine? Is it is it worth it? But Kindle, of course, has become so popular, but there's nothing better than holding a book in your hand. You know, the Kindle, so handy, great for holidays, blah, blah, blah. But ugh, both me and my partner have actually lost our enthusiasm for reading so much more because of the Kindle and Mm. then when we get a book in our hand and we feel it and the texture and it it's just a much more enjoyable experience and you know everybody has got such sort of kind of weird habits my weird (laughs) habit is to have magazines and to cut out little pictures that I like cut out recipes I like I'm like, yeah. I feel like I'm such a 20th century woman. And, you know, I'm so married oh. to print and to the glossy <laughs> page. And it's, yes. um, I'm, I'm like you. I like, I like to hold the magazine in my hand. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. um, I like the smell of books. But mm-hmm. I'm clearly talking as a, I'm not born digital. And so I wonder whether this is to do with age or whether it is just to do with preference, I don't, I can't answer that. But I know yeah. that for me, it's a huge difference to hold something in my hands and flick through it and keep the page open, or then mm. you know cut out something that I like and pin it up on my pin board, or keep. I actually have a recipe folder, and you know, so I'm because I'm organized and I'm terrible <laughs> and I'm ridiculous. But you know, I can totally imagine that you have a recipe folder. Mm-hmm. I imagine you have a folder for many things. <laughs> I have. <laughs> yes, I can yes, totally yes. get that. But also when I go on holiday and I go to the beach, I don't I I do not want to take my Kindle because I want to go in the sea and I don't want somebody to nick my Kindle whereas taking a magazine is perfect. It's there, you put it on your towel, no one's going to take it. I think there's still a need for magazines. And it is actually really interesting if you if you think that conundrum at the heart of publishing Mm. which is which is true for books and which is true for journalism is that everything like everything is supposed to be digital 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 but the real revenue for magazines certainly is still in print if there is revenue it has to be said for for most people but the the death of paper and the death of books and the death of print has been predicted so many times and yet it hasn't died yet and <laughs> <laughs> while while people do have a shorter attention span, long form journalism isn't dead either. Mm. And mm-hmm. um, yes, we know, for instance, at File Stuff that ninety um, percent of our website is consumed on mobile phones and, and handheld devices. But when it comes to the magazine, it's a different. It occupies a different space in people's lives. The magazine means, okay, now I've made myself a cup of coffee or I've poured myself a glass of wine and now I'm going to sit on my sofa and I'm going to take this half hour for me and I'm going Mm -hmm. to disappear into this beautiful and glossy world. And Mm -hmm. um, it's very different from consuming news or, or other journalism or whatever it is between two tube stops or, you know, um, in your lunch break on your laptop. 
so I think there is a space for books and magazines, absolutely. Oh, now interesting. You mentioned just then that the long format articles they're still around and you've I mean phew, you have written some incredibly detailed and informative articles and there is one that I saw that is on Pinot Noir clones and cuttings and people you can find this in the world of fine wine so let's get to a bit of education here I would love you to <laughs> in not too complicated a format uh talk to me about why is there so many Pinot Noir clones? And why do people talk about Pinot Noir clones and yet they don't talk about, I don't know, Cabernet Sauvignon clones or Sauvignon Blanc clones? What's the obsession with Pinot Noir clones? Well, what's the obsession with Pinot Noir, you might ask? Uh. That's an even more interesting question. So what, why do I write about this? Because this is a number of years ago that I wrote about this and I will be forever grateful to Dr. Neil Beckett, who um, is the editor of The World of Fine Wine, mm -hmm. a kind of spiritual home for me, and who lets people write in depth about a subject. Yeah. Why yeah. did I write articles like that? This clonal article is because I was in California at Arno Roberts. And we mm -hmm. tasted this wine, this Pinot, and I was just kind of blown away, you know, really moved. Okay. And then we were talking about this, and then we said, oh, yes, and these clones, and you know how in, how in California there are certain plantings that have then kicked off certain genetic selections that are referred to by the original vineyard, like the Calera or uh, the Martini selection or blah, blah, blah. And, you know, mm -hmm. and then it was, this was to me held up as a kind of true Californian expression of Pinot. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, the romantic in me wants to believe this kind of Cape Pinot goes out into the world but makes itself at home. And, you know, <laughs> and then and then other people say, oh, you know, I planted 777 and this is why now it is far more Burgundian than when I still had German clones. And you just think, okay, <laughs> what is this all about? And so uh -huh. I just wanted, it was, it was entirely driven by curiosity. And okay. so I wanted to find out. And so I found out about, okay, who actually developed clonal selection? And then you have to go into the history of wine growing, what happened with the devastation of phylloxera and why are there clones? Because viticulture was in such dire straits and so much grape material was virus. If you think that a vine is a perennial plant, you plant it mm -hmm. once, you have to wait years until you get a yield and then you might do back-breaking work in that vineyard, but you may actually end up not having a harvest if things go wrong. If there is a virus or if you are not cold resistant or if you're not, you know, there's so many things that can go wrong. And this mm -hmm. was the case in so many regions in Europe, especially after phylloxera and people had planted stuff that wasn't fully vinifera. Yeah, so it was actually a help or a, 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 an attempt on the part of the um, official wine growing research stations to come up with things that would ensure yields for the people who, you know, for those thousands of wine growers everywhere in Europe, because we know Europe's wine industry is incredibly fragmented. So people wanted to have vines they could plant and actually have a harvest and not starve, mm. because that was the reality. And this is how these things came about, how clonal selection was developed. And this was developed by somebody in Germany in the 19th century, and then they carried it on. And then it was the research stations in, in Switzerland that did very similar stuff. And about Pinot Noir, I just wanted to find out who started this. And then 
I got, you know, correspondence between the Prussian state domains and the ministry mm -hmm. in Berlin telling them to do clonal selections and stuff like that. And it's just fascinating. But also then realizing that, okay, you might have one and the same clone of Pinot Noir and you plant it in two different places, in three or four or five different places, and it will look different. So mm -hmm. what for years people thought was a huge genetic variety are merely epigenetic responses of a particular clone. And so it's, to me, this is endlessly fascinating. Yeah, 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 But, I can um, imagine. And, you know, and then doing proper research, you actually see, aha, does this make sense? And if this person is saying, standing there in his vineyard amidst his vines, and we've just tasted this amazing Pinot and whatever, and he talks about clones... Does he actually know what he's talking about or does he just repeat hearsay? Mm. Yes, and some people just know so much. And I remember I wrote a little follow-up to that clonal article and I spent time with Jean-Baptiste Lecaillon, who's the chef du caf at Champagne Louis Röderer. Mm -hmm. And we were just in the trial vineyard because Röderer have done their own clonal selections of Chardonnay, Meunier and Pinot Noir. And it was just wonderful just to spend time with such a visionary and such a scientist and to just be there and look at two different kinds of pinot leaves and and mm. you know just these things fascinate me and it's wonderful to be able to report on them and talking of clonal selection does it preserve biodiversity by having lots of different clones in your vineyards Well, if you have, if you just plant one clone in a vineyard, mm -hmm. that is not biodiverse. And we also now know that this is not very resilient. So um, what people now actually do, and this is often reported as being a massal selection, mm -hmm. because people say, oh, we planted the massal selection fin or très fin um, or supérieur um, from France and we bought our massal selection in Burgundy. When in fact, there is the ATVB, which is an agricultural agency of, um, of the Burgundian Grower Association. Mm -hmm. And what they do and what they have done for years is that they have identified vines and they have then taken cuttings, propagated them, observed them. And um, the good ones have become registered clones. Mm. However, they're never sold as a single clone. but in a mix, yes? Okay. So, mm -hmm. and this is sold as uh, Pinot Noir, Fin, Très Fin, Supérieur. Um, yeah, those different levels. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, which have to do with, with yield. And there's no point in, in planting Très Fin, which is very low yielding, in a kind of vigorous vineyard because it's just counterproductive. But, you know, mm -hmm. so just because it says Très Fin isn't, is, it's the best, but only for certain kinds of wine in certain places you know it's the answers are never easy mm. so what actually happens is when people say oh I've, i've got this collection every single vine in this collection is of an identifiable clone it's just presented in a mix okay interesting. you know this is not just oh um this is a massive selection and we don't quite know what is what no it's an absolutely scientifically backed stuff and had you bought the the selection far Ten years ago, it would have made been made up of a different proportion of things from what it is today because they move on. They constantly adapt. Mm. They constantly identify and propagate and find out more. And um, I find this fascinating. And so 
I think what the world has absolutely now clocked on to, especially in clonal selection, is that when these clones were selected, you know, because this is a, this is a process that takes years, it's incredibly slow. And so these things were selected, the French official selection started in the 1950s. And mm-hmm. so these were cooler years. And so, of course, they looked for grapes that would clock up sugar, that would ripen at a certain time. They may have discarded the high acid clones or selections or, you know, they may have chosen things for the preoccupations of their time, which was ripening and actually Mm -hmm. getting enough alcohol without having to chaptalize and stuff like that. These aims for selection are now no longer there because now you want something that preserves its acidity. That is... Yeah. Climate change, presumably. Is it fair to say? Yes. So you see the goalposts also move, but this is the wonderful thing that, that the plant adapts and has adapted and um, I earlier asked a question and I am now I'm going to answer it because you think I said, OK, you asked me, what is what is the obsession with Pinot clones? So, and then I said, no, what is the obsession with Pinot Noir? <laughs> because I've thought so much about this. And if you think that Pinot Noir is one of the very, very, very few grape varieties, if not the only grape variety that actually can be traced back in one place with an almost seamless history from those first monastic days, even if if it wasn't the the form of Pinot it is now, it was an antecedent or it was its its its, its sort of ancestors and pre predecessors. You know, you have we know that Pinot evolved alongside us, and yeah. there is this huge cultural interaction between human and vine, between human and Pinot Noir. And I, of course, this is just opinion, but I think this is why Pinot moves us so much because it's been with us for such a long time. You know, it's it's taken the edge of people's harsh lives for centuries. And mm-hmm. this is why it moves us so. I don't know. It's just conjecture. No, it's beautiful to think that, to be fair. And you mentioned that we know exactly where it came from. Where exactly do they trace it back to specifically? It's somewhere in Burgundy and it was, you know, people called it by various names, Noirien, and but it this is where it evolved and this is where its heritage is. Mm. And this is also where you had a feudal and a monastic society where single-side viticulture was born, where people basically monastic communities, brothers and sisters, monks and nuns, saw it as an act of devotion to Mm. tend vines and make wine. So this informed their work in a way that we cannot imagine in this day and age. And we talk about what it's come to be. I want to touch on Spadburgunder, which, Mm -hmm. of course, for anyone who doesn't know, is Pinot Noir uh, in its German Form. So I think Germany is the third largest producer of Pinot Noir, right? It became the third largest producer of Pinot Noir well, now, sometime yeah. in the late 20th century. Mm-hmm. And this is actually um, an interesting question because if I start talking about German, the history of German viticulture will still be here tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but Another podcast. Oh God, yes, and and it's so intricate, and I don't even want to start getting into it all because it's too. <laughs> you then always, in order to 
in order to present the full picture, you have to present various elements of mm. of this. But it is partly German history that makes me think of Burgundy in the way I do, because okay. where most of the German wine regions are, they are in the southwest, mm-hmm. um, along the River Rhine and, and its tributaries. And those places were a theater of war. So you had the Thirty Years' War, a devastating conflict, where the population was decimated, where villages were left without anybody tending any vines. Mm. And then you had further conflicts and further conflicts. And so you have disruption. And if you know that um, the Thirty Years' War was about reformation and counter-reformation, And so monasteries were burnt down, libraries were burnt down. And who kept the records? The monasteries. And Mm. so you see there is this terribly interrupted history and the Germans keep trying to link their current Pinot Noir to some kind of ancient form of it. We know that the medieval warm period coincided with the expansion of monasteries in the 12th century. And so there were so many filiations, especially of um, Cistercian monasteries and abbeys, and they all needed wine, and they all needed, you know, sacramental wine. They all believed in this devotional idea. And of course they founded monasteries in Germany, and of course it's totally plausible that they would have brought Pinot Noir or whatever with them. Mm -hmm. But there are no records And if they are, which I hope they are, you know, they are slumbering somewhere um, and are waiting to be discovered by some historian who actually also knows about wine. So this is this is the thing that there probably has been a presence of Pinot Noir in certain pockets of German viticulture. But what is Mm. interesting is that German Pinot Noir has made such a is, is actually such a success story because it it encapsulates what happened to Germany and the German wine industry over the past 40 years. It was a kind of a, a return to quality and a return to a kind of self-awareness mm-hmm. and a return to wanting to express what is special despite a kind of legal framework that is just a pain. Mm. Mm. It's interesting. Now, I would just want to, for people who have now perhaps just heard of Spatburgunder and realised, oh my God, this is Pinot Noir. What wine region in Germany do you think is key for Spatburgunder? Where should they go to to try their first Pinot Noir, their first Spatburgunder? Okay, there are 13 wine regions in Germany mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and Pinot Noir grows in every single one of them. Mm-hmm. It's My favourites are more to do with style than okay. they are to do with region. For me, I've always just seen, or at least I've identified Baden in the southernmost region to Pinot Noir. So, you know, I would always tend to look for a, a bottle saying Baden on it, but I don't know if more Pinot Noir is in, in the R region or if that's just red in general. No, there is, there is more in Baden. There is more um, in Baden, Okay. And um, because the R, Baden is a large region and the R is mm-hmm. a very small region. So just, mm-hmm. just proportionally, even though much proportionally, much more of the R covered in Pinot Noir mm. than of, of uh, Pinot in, in Baden. But of course, mm. there are many, many, many more hectares of Pinot yeah. in Baden than there are in the R. But 
Um, those two places are definitely on the menu. So is Franconia, <laughs> and so is the Pfalz, so is Rheingau, so is even the Nahe, you know? Yes. It's kind of, mm-hmm. um, it depends what you're looking for, because there is this climatic aspect, because the German yes. wine regions cover four degrees of latitude. Mm-hmm. Then there is the soil, there are many, many places where you find limestone. Mm-hmm. Some uh, Jurassic limestone, like in Burgundy, but mostly... Triassic limestone, which is a bit younger. Um, then you have Pinot Noir on sandstone, on red sandstone, say in Franconia, and that makes very filigree, very fine boned Pinot that I love and adore. Mm. Then there is Württemberg, where you have sandstones as well, and richer Kuiper. Um, and again, some limestone. Then you have um, volcanic formations in Baden, limestone in Baden, Lös. Mm-hmm. We can go on, you know. But... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know, and, and of course, I like you said, we haven't got all week, have we? But what do you? Is this? This is probably a really difficult question. Um, but of course, all around the world, people are comparing their Pinot Noirs to Burgundy. Mm-hmm. Can you summarize or put? all Pinot Noir from Germany and compare it somehow to Burgundy in terms of flavour profile? No. And you (laughs) see, it's actually... And you know why I can't? Because... Because you know too much and it's too... Yeah, tell me. What is Burgundy? Because there are... um, I don't know whether you tasted some of the um, 2020 en primeurs, but... I did not. There are people who make exquisitely fine-boned translucent, poetic Pinot. Then there Mm -hmm. are people who make absolutely glossy, powerful and sumptuous Pinot. Then Mm -hmm. you're like, what is Burgundy? And this is the kind of fallacy that drives drives me nuts. (laughs) Yes, I had to pass tasting exams, but this is exactly why they drive me nuts. And you can pass these tasting exams because the wines in these exams are chosen to what people mm. think Pomar is, or Volmy mm-hmm. is, yeah? Mm-hmm. Or what yeah. Gevry is vis-à-vis Chambol Musimi. But then when you taste, is it actually, if people are entirely honest, is it always just so clear-cut? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we all know, like blind tasting, if it's not about finding out, oh, what is this and blah, blah, if you just want to blind taste if you know, okay, these are all Pinot Noirs and we just look for how they taste like without second-guessing anything. Or winemakers play this game where, say, for instance, the German winemakers, five winemakers get together and have a blind lineup of their own Pinots and stick in one or two Burgundies. And sometimes, A, they don't find their own wine or they don't <laughs> find the Burgundy. Um, and you could you could say this about numerous you know, about Chardonnay, about, yeah. you know. Um, so I don't want to simplify something and reduce it when I know it is infinitely complex. I know I'm not yeah. helping, especially wine students. I should be saying this is this or this is that, but it's just so complex and it's difficult. There mm. is a certain, there used to be a certain savoriness yes. to certain German clones, okay, yeah, which might also have to do might have had to do something with underripeness, then 
I think soil, limestone and pinot results in a certain mouthfeel and a certain inherent mm-hmm. coolness. So for me, I'm, I'm, I have made these connections in my mind more about soil, but then okay. I, I know that some, a sommelier who wanted to pass an exam said to me, Anne, is German Spätburgunder like Wolny? And I think, please, this is, this, the, you can't, I know what the answer he wanted, but it's just yeah. not possible to say that mm-hmm. because then again, yes, we know what our ideal idea is of a Wolny. Mine mm-hmm. is like, um, Domaine de Monti. Taipei mm-hmm. Premier Cru, you know? Mm-hmm. My idea of Von Romani, my ideal of Von Romani is Premier Cru Le Malconsort. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. But then there are lots of other Von Romanis that absolutely are grown in this village and in this commune. And do they get close to my ideal? No. No. <laughs> my ideal, everybody else's ideal? No. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm sorry, I actually can't answer the question. No, I think that's fine. What I would say is I have found that with German Pinot, or I should say Spätburgunder, it's getting a lot more concentrated now. In the past, perhaps because of the climate, it didn't necessarily have uh, the the body or the intensity. Um, would that be fair to say that it's Absolutely now... fair to say. This has a lot yeah. to do with climate change, crop levels, and a new kind of different clones because the Germans continued with their clonal development, but mm-hmm. not only the development of German particular clones, but also Germans going and actually planting quality material rather than yeah. high-yielding clones. Um, okay. I wrote my MW dissertation about the emergence of quality or of premium German Pinot Noir, so that's why, ah, I, can, okay. why I can say this. A, a lot of things coincided to then kind of become a... There were certain pioneers and then Mm. there was a critical mass at some point and then there was a real turning point. And Mm, whether we like it or not, Burgundy is the home of Pinot Noir, will forever Mm -hmm. be a holy grail and it is the place where people pay most for Pinot Noir. And the market is very... What people pay and how people value things means how they get reported, how they get covered in the press, how they are listed in a in a menu. You you go mm-hmm. to a to a restaurant and find a wine list. Nobody will start with Hungarian wine or Slovenian <laughs> wine, you know. So it's mm-hmm. you not because this is not any good, but because there is a history, the history and the and the, and, the prestige and, that it holds. Yeah. Exactly, and and we are all. None of us is really free of these almost indoctrinated things because if you go to the WSET, what do you start with? Bordeaux followed by Burgundy, followed, you know, so so there is a kind mm-hmm. of hierarchical thinking which is entirely informed by culture and the market. And culture is, of course, history. But so, um, yes, the Germans reach critical mass at some point. And I said, yes, Burgundy will always be the kind of holy grail in the place where people look towards. But I think... It is true to say for most people in the world who make Pinot Noir, yes, they will all have done one or more pilgrimages to Burgundy. But what they want to do is express their place, their soil, their conditions Mm. through their Pinot. And they can, and most of them do. And this is fascinating and beautiful. And Mm. 
The point with burgundy is that the prices are so sky high because there is so little of it and everybody wants a piece of it. And then there have been there has been a string of low yielding vintages. And then, of course, we know the year 2021 is disastrous because there was such great losses. So mm-hmm. um, prices are now so high that people invariably have to look for alternatives. And yeah. lo and behold, there is this country that used to be too cool and now it's almost getting too warm but in many Mm. places it's actually just right for pinot and now whereas people used to fetishize every degree of oeksle oeksle is the degree you measure the density of sugar in your grape juice um, the ripeness of your grape you know people used to fetishize this in germany and Mm. now you can ripen grapes every year now you look for freshness. Now you look for expression. Now you no longer try and say, oh, I have a Pinot with 14.5%. No, <laughs> you do everything to shade your grapes, to, you know, this this, this is actually, it's, it's fascinating because for a long time, nothing happened. Now so much has happened in such a short time. And now you can have incredibly beautiful and poetic Pinot Noir. I just think it's again about getting the wine and trying it and being open. Yeah, that's really what it is about. Now, talking of just giving these wines, Spätburgunders, a go, next week Anne talks about the wine regions of Germany. It's not heavy. We kind of just duck and dive around some of the regions to know about and we flirt with some of the lesser known ones. So you'll have a nice long list of varieties and regions to tick off. Now, to finish off with a wine quote, and who better but to feature literally Burgundy's most powerful woman. Some call her Burgundy's reigning grand dame, queen of Burgundy. She is Lulu Biz Lois. Involved in one business since 1955, formerly at the helm of Domaine de la Romani Conti as co-owner, and now steering the ship of Domaine Loire. And with that, I found a quote. When asked about her concept of winemaking or as a winemaker, she responded, There is no winemaking and no winemaker. We are guardians. We watch. We observe. We make some decisions, but it is the grapes that come first. They guide us. Our job is to look, observe, and try to understand. This is our job, our role. Yes, we make decisions, but we don't really do anything. Pinot Noir truly is a magical variety, the heartbreak grape. And when respected and listened to, especially in its most spiritual home, Burgundy, that's when the wine will speak to you. Thank you, as always, to those of you listening. Please do make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss any future episodes. Share this podcast with your wine-loving friends and do leave a comment, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. Have a great week. I'll meet you all back here next Monday. And until then, cheers to you.